Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, that's where we are. We're going through a study in the book of 1 John. And so, Drew, our senior pastor, is out of town getting a father-son trip with Cruz. So pray that they get the most memorable memories and times together. And so I get 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. I entitled it, Assurance, Advocate, and Propitiation. Wow, three big words, two of which we would not want to be called on in class to define. (laughs) And so now you see why Drew went out of town this weekend. (laughs) Assurance. You know when you get that word in class, that's when you want the teacher to call on you. Assurance, the state of being sure or certain about something. We could handle that one. Advocate, Mm, not that good on that one. One who pleads another's cause, who helps another by defending or comforting him. And then propitiation. That's when I head to the bathroom. (laughs) Removing the wrath of God from us by an offering of guilt, of gift, excuse me, an offering of a gift. In order to get a grasp for these three words this morning, I propose that we work on two words that are not spoken very often from a pulpit, not taken on from very many churches. We need to understand assurance, advocate, and propitiation. And so let's break down two words before that. The words are wrath and justice. Wrath. Andy Davis, pastor from Durham, North Carolina, and from twojourneys.org, gives a comparison that will really help us this morning. So in 399 B.C., About 400 years before Christ walked the face of this earth, Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers in human history, he upset the establishment in Greece by teaching his disciples truths that were contrary to the teaching of the Greek gods. So Socrates was sentenced to death, and he was charged in the Athenian courts with impiety. The result was death. And the instrument of death was for Socrates to drink a cup of hemlock. And so they led up to that day. Socrates' disciples pulled Socrates to the side and gave him a plan of escape so that he didn't have to drink the cup of hemlock. But Socrates said no. Socrates saw it as an honorable way to die, holding on to his integrity, and so he drank the cup willingly in peace, and he died. Contrast that about 430-something years later to Luke chapter 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ took his disciples when he was facing death. 
And he said, quote, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Y'all know the picture, right? What's the difference between Socrates' cup and Jesus Christ's cup? Why would Socrates drink his cup in peace with no fear at all? While Jesus was sweating drops of blood as he was laboring over his cup? Jesus had lived a life of courage. We all know that. Why now the struggle, Jesus? I would say to you, it's because the contents of the cup were different. In Socrates' cup was a cup of physical death. While in Jesus' cup, though it did lead to a physical death on the cross, Jesus' cup carried so much more. Jesus' cup contained the wrath of God. Jesus drank a cup of God's wrath that was meant for us. It was meant for you and for me. Yet Jesus drank that cup in our place, the wrath of God. Propitiation turns away the wrath of God from us. And though liberal theologians would run from the truth of the Bible related to the wrath of God, you cannot deny when you see firsthand reading through the entirety of Scripture. The sons of Korah in number 16, verse 46. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Check these words out. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. And do you know what happened? Many Hundreds of thousands died. Maybe that's a one-off story. What about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This was not a work done by the enemy. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew the cities and the valley, and the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19. Okay, those are good Old Testament stories. His wrath isn't in the New Testament. Oh, say ye no. How about Acts 5? And a little guy named Ananias and his wonderful bride, Sapphira. In Acts 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, you have lied to God. What a statement. You have not lied to man, you have lied to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Acts 5, verses 3 through 6. The wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God brings great fear. Well, let's look at the word justice. To understand our advocate, assurance, and propitiation, we need to understand wrath. We need to understand justice. The heavenly court is in session continually, yet we have a hard time comprehending this heavenly court. So let's look at the highest court in our land to understand justice. The United States Supreme Court sits atop Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Anybody ever gone in? Just a few of us. You're not supposed to take pictures. I learned that. <laughs> the Supreme Court has both original and appellate jurisdiction. Nine justices comprise the decision of the court, their judgment rendered. It's the final word for all disputes in the United States of America. So to understand how it works, you have the petitioner, the prosecuting attorney who writes a brief. You have the respondent or the defense attorney, the advocate who is pleading for the defendant. And then you have the petitioner who will argue first in oral arguments, followed by the respondent. Upon decision, the, the justices release their opinions. Well, what does the heavenly court look like? Always in session with God and God alone as the chief justice on his throne. Daniel 7, 9 says, All, Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne with fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Boy, that'd be a little intimidating come before that judge, wouldn't it? And let's move on to Revelation 12 to get a picture of this heavenly court. Revelation 12.10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Do you see the judicial wording here? The accuser stands day and night accusing the judge about us. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Friends, the petitioner, Satan, comes in great wrath accusing you and accusing me constantly that we are falling short of the glory of God. Do y'all ever feel that? 
the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, attorney, stands before the judge and he looks me and you in the face and he accuses us of our sin daily because he knows his time is short. We are guilty, says Satan. His time concludes. We sit in fear of judgment, knowing that we should be guilty. But then in this heavenly court, our advocate stands. His name is Jesus Christ. He gets up and delivers a rebuttal. His rebuttal includes the propitiation argument, and he rests his case. He sits down immediately. 100% of the time, the righteous judge, God Almighty, his name is I Am. He renders his verdict not guilty by reason of propitiation. That's what we're living in. Let's read 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The first question this morning is, do I have an advocate? Do I have an advocate? Verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He wants us to not sin. That's the standard in the heavenly courts. Perfection. But we all know that's not going to happen. Is there anyone in here crazy enough to stand before God and to say that you don't sin? Okay, we've got that good. None of us would do that. So now what do we do? Look at the second part of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, and that word if there is since everyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. We have the respondent. We have the defense attorney. That word advocate is going to surprise some of you a little bit this morning. That Greek word advocate is parakletos. It means helper. We remember that parakletos, helper, is used with the word for Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, 17, and verse 26, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Helper, 
parakletos, the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, the helper, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then also in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And if that's not enough, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ intercedes for us. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. We have the defense. His name is Jesus. And he mediates for us in the heavenly courts. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is our helper. He's our advocate. He's at the right hand of the Father, defending us before the accuser. And if that isn't enough, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling within you. He is living in you. He is comforting you, convicting you of sin. He is teaching you all things and bringing to remembrance all that Jesus has taught us in his word. We have a helper in heaven at the right hand of the judge, and we have a helper inside our hearts here on earth. Friends, that should be encouraging this morning. What gives Jesus Christ the right to be our advocate? Well, he's the righteous one. He's the only person in human history who could claim to be without sin. So y'all say, tell me more, Rob, about this advocate. Thank you, I will. Look at verse 2 in 1 John of chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. The removal of the wrath of God from us by way of a gift. Jesus Christ propitiates for our sins. He satisfies the wrath of God for our sins by drinking the cup of wrath that you and I poured. Luke 22, and he withdrew from them and he went a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me, Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He did this for you and me. Verse 2 goes on. And not only for just you and me, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ drank the cup 
so that all people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues could come and receive this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we send friends to North Africa, into closed Muslim countries, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. We send them to East Asia, to closed countries, so they can preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ drank the cup so that all people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues may receive this gift. John 3.16, which all of us know, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loved the world that much. John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we have theologians who take these verses and give credibility to the belief of what is called Christian universalism. Is that what this passage is saying? Christian universalism? And you say, please don't call on me for that one. Christian universalism says that God loves all and God saves all. Christian universalism says that no one will go to hell. We're all good, we die, we all go to heaven. And we have this Christian universalist view. To these people, they can quote John 3.16, but they don't quite get to John 3.18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I guess they don't really catch that verse. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Condemnation comes to those who do not believe. Whether we like it or not. Do I have an advocate? The second question today is, do I have assurance? How can I know that I know that I know him. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. The first way that you know, that you know, that you know Jesus Christ is number one, you keep his commandments. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him and we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You remember Ananias? Not a very good place to be. For us to know his commands, it assumes that we know actually his commandments. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These commands from Jesus, they're in his word. In this exact passage, 
The imperative commands are go. The imperative commands are baptize. The imperative command is to teach. Teach our disciples all that Jesus has commanded us to obey. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Do you know him? Do you keep his commands? This challenges us to know God's word. It challenges us to know God's word. Psalm 119, verse 11, 12, and 105 say, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Your lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119. His word is what allows us to understand his commandments. So do I have assurance? How can I know that I know him? Well, first of all, I keep his commands. Well, what else shows me how to have assurance? Look at verses 5 and 6 of 1 John 2. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You know how pastors just preach and preach and preach and then you walk away going, what did I take from that sermon? Well, here's what I would love for you to take from this sermon. For you to learn how to walk in a manner in, a manner in which he has us to walk, we do three things. We live truthfully, we love perfectly, and we walk similarly. For me to learn to walk with him in the manner in which Jesus walked, I need to live out three things. I need to live truthfully, I need to love perfectly, and I need to walk similarly. Let's break those down, to live truthfully. Go back for a minute to verse 4 in chapter 2. They say, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Be truthful. Value truth. Isaiah 59, 14. Justice is churned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Friends, be honest with God. Be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. And be honest with others. Last week we learned in 1 John 1, 6, 8, and 9, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, you know what that is? That's being honest with God. You know that's being honest with yourself? And did you know that that is being honest with others? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So we are challenged to live truthfully. Not only are we challenged to live truthfully, if we want to walk with him in a manner in which Jesus walked, we will love perfectly. 1 John 4, 16 through 19 says, So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for that day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Getting back to the heavenly court, the prosecuting attorney, the accuser, Satan, he stands before this holy judge using fear and shame and lies to destroy us. Can anyone relate? This prosecuting attorney uses fear to hold you captive. He uses shame to humiliate you. He uses lies to destroy you. But our God is love. We come to know him and we believe in this love. And that love becomes perfected in us. 1 John 2 verse 5. That love is perfected in us. That love casts out fear. That love gives us confidence on the day of judgment. That love is good news. How assuring. We love because he first loved us. So I walk in Christ's steps by living truthfully. I walk in Christ's steps by loving perfectly. And finally, I walk in Christ's steps by walking similarly. I walk as Jesus walked. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Proverbs 15.21, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. And then we're just going to walk through the very words of Jesus for a minute. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 10:38 says, "Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me." Luke 9:23 says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me." John 10:27 says, "My sheep hear his voice and I know them and they follow me." Y'all catching this theme? What do you think God is calling us to do? Follow his son, Jesus. How do I do that? I learn his commands. I practice his commands. I follow with discipline and intentionality. Knowing that trying to accomplish these with power of mine alone, I will fail miserably. Catch that. Okay, I heard your message, Pastor. 
I am going to start in the new year, right? We always start in the new year. And I am going to follow after you, God. And then what happens to our willpower? We fall flat on our face in shame and humiliation. But I want to encourage you that we have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And that helper helps us follow Christ. Assurance, folks, can be tricky. There are people in this room today who question themselves. I never measure up to the standard. I'm never going to be good enough for God. But you really do know God. And He really knows you. You have that advocate, Jesus, defending you. So would you rest in that today? Would you be assured of that today? But there are those of you in this room who say, I believe in Jesus. I go to church. And man, I don't sin near as much as those people who live in my neighborhood. This passage is not too reassuring for some of you. Jesus Christ is our advocate in the heavenly courts before the holy, righteous judge. Let's see what was prophesied by him this morning in Isaiah 53 as we close. And as we read Isaiah 53, listen for judicial language. Accusation in verse 3. Propitiation in verse 4, 6, and 10. Wrath in verse 5. Acquittal in verse 11. Our advocate our defense attorney in verse 12. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesying. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that he should look at him and no beauty that he should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see the propitiation? Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see the wrath of God upon our Savior Jesus? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see the propitiation? You see the cup of wrath? Verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see the acquittal? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We have an advocate. Christ was from the beginning. We see in Isaiah 53 that he is then. We see in the book of Genesis, we see in the book of Daniel, we see in the book of Revelation. It's 66 books with one story. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He gives us assurance. He is the propitiation for our sins. He removes the wrath of God from us by the offering of a gift. A gift. Have you received it? Have you acted like you know that gift, but you never have received it? Our sin is atoned for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I would beg you, is your faith in Christ, do you know him? If so, be assured and rest confidently that on that day of judgment, that day in court, you're good. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in yourself or in some philosophy from Socrates or Plato, I would encourage you to consider what has been said to us today. That day in court will be devastating. We want you today to know the truth and to be saved. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing a song. We're going to have a benediction. We would beg you, if you are wrestling with your own salvation, come and talk to literally almost anyone in this room. You can come and talk to me. You could come and talk to a friend. They want you to have assurance. Let's pray.